You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Welcome to Domecast. It's the News and Observer's political podcast, and I'm Jordan Schrader hosting today. I'm here with Will Doran and Kern Huey, who hasn't been on the podcast in a while and is going to talk about the latest education news, catch us up on what's been happening in the legislature and in state government on education. Uh, And on the phone from D.C., Brian Murphy, our D.C. correspondent. So let's start with education. Uh, Kern, the big controversy uh, there has been over reading tests for um, kindergartners through third graders. Um, and in the past, the they've tested in reading by reading to their teachers. Um, but there's a new system where uh, they may be tested soon using computers. And this has caused a, uh, a big fight between two of the companies um, that contract or want to contract with the state. So, um, first of all, what's what's kind of the background on this? How did all this start? Well, um, Amplify Education, that's the provider that's been uh, providing testing program for the last six years now. Um, in June, um, Mark, State Superintendent Mark Johnson announced that he had issued a new contract to, uh, that would switch the uh, service to uh, the online program that's going to be used by iStation. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy about how the contract was issued. Um, a committee that uh, Johnson had formed had uh, recommended that they keep using uh, Amplify's product, uh, but uh, Johnson wound up um, disbanding that group, forming a new group, which uh, recommended that they switch to using the iStation program. So um, um, Amplify Education, uh, they appealed it. After Johnson rejected that appeal, uh, they went to the State Department of Information Technology, which uh, this week granted a temporary stay um, blocking the award of the new contract. So now there's, since school is starting next week, there's been a lot of confusion for school districts about what to do with the program since, you know, Amplify is saying that the, the decision means that um, iStation has to halt implementation of the new program. iStation is saying that the uh, ruling was flawed, that they're continuing to go ahead to keep training teachers and keep uh, helping schools get prepared. So with all this going on, you've got now got Mark Johnson, and you've also got uh, iStation now appealing the case. Uh, so they're waiting for um, Eric Boyette, the uh, secretary for the Department of Future Technology, to... Um, rule on the appeal. And so as we're going forward, trying to see, you know, how students, you know, those K-3 students should actually should be, how, who's, how they get assessed the reading, what's going to happen for the next few months. Because the likelihood is even after there's a, um, a ruling by a boy, probably the losing side's going to take the case to the courts and this could drag on for months. And so other than the, if you're one of these teachers who's needing to take this training or one of these companies that's fighting over it, um, what, what sort of the, what difference does it make what program they're using? What, what have people said pro and con about the choice of the, the two different systems as far when it comes to actually being able to test kids? Well, supporters of the old system, the Amplify M-Class program, they're saying that it's better because by having the, the students read to the, the teachers that the 
just having the interaction that the teachers can actually get better on you where the kids are strong and where they're weak and then they can figure out how to focus in on it. But also that process is much more time consuming. One of the benefits that, you know, uh, Mark Johnson and supportive eye station are saying is that since this new program is an online program that the kids use that it'll take a lot less time, the results which will be fed to the teacher that the teacher can then use these results to figure out how to tailor the instruction that they'll, instead of spending all this one-on-one time assessing kids with the Oprah, they'll just be able to go in and, and use the uh, this computer data to go figure out how to do the instruction. Like it's a question of what you think is a better way to assess students, having them work, interact with the teacher or have them use this computer program then relay the results. So there's a lot of debate about which one is going to be the best way to ensure kids uh, at, at that critical early grade levels can actually learn how to read properly. And the background of all this, I guess, is that uh, there's a big program, Read to Achieve, that is trying to um, make sure that kids are ready to go into um, third grade, I guess, or fourth grade. Um, and um, it hasn't been doing so well, right? Yeah. Yeah. These uh, tests that they're using at the KG level are the main te- um, benchmark tests that they're supposed to use to try to figure out measure how well students are progressing uh, toward actually getting to the point where they can show that they're reading at the end of third grade because that's the study has shown that if you're not reading by the end of third grade, you're going to be significantly further behind as you go along. So um, uh, critics of the, uh, the current program argue, hey, scores are actually getting worse, so that shows the program isn't effective. But then supporters say that you can't hold that program as the reason why you know, kids aren't reading well, that there are other factors, you know, there's not enough state funding, those other issues. So, um, But clearly the state recognizes that they have not been doing as good a job as they need to to get uh, kids reading. I mean, we said, we'll have the new results coming out in September, but for the last several years, reading scores have actually been declining at the third grade level. Even in spite of spending more than 150 million in state funding for redo achieve, um, and this has kind of been a big push in the legislature for for redo achieve and for trying to improve the scores for um, for third graders and and get them reading. Um, do you get any sense the legislature is going to step in or anybody else is going to step into this uh, to this mess and try to resolve it, or is it just got to wind its way through the through the courts? I guess basically. Well, we had a group of uh, Senate Democrats who had uh, made a request to Phil Berger to open an investigation into it. He declined. He said that they need to let this go through the court system, that it's not the place the legislature to step in at this stage. So it's unlikely the legislature will step in. Um, you know, some NCAE has asked uh, Josh Stein and uh, Beth Wood to also step in, but at this point, neither of them have uh, announced if they're going to be investigating how the contract was awarded. Okay. And then on the sort of the other end of of testing, they're actually reducing testing in the legislature. Um, And you've been writing about that this week, too. Um, The House and Senate have both been putting plans forward that would cut the number of tests uh, students take, especially in high school, but in uh, a whole range of grades. And um, they reached a deal on that, it sounds like. Yeah. Both the uh, House and Senate had come up with some slightly different plans on how they wanted to reduce the testing. So um, uh, after um, they couldn't agree, a, a, a group of legislators from both bodies got together, and this week they released their conference report version of it, which would 
the main change is that it would eliminate the uh, the North Carolina final exams, which are basically the, the set of tests which are um, given to teachers in uh, for subjects which there are no other state tests that can use to evaluate them. There are more than 20 of them, most of them in high school, but there are some in elementary and middle school level. Under the, this compromise, um, all those exams would be eliminated in the 2020-2021 school year. Another element of the bill is that it would um, uh, require school districts to examine how much testing that they give at the local level. And if it's more than the, the, the kids spend more time than they do there than on state tests, they'd be required to develop a plan to reduce the, uh, the amount of testing they provide locally. Um, at this point, both uh, the House and Senate are scheduled to vote on it Monday. It probably should pass. It'll likely then go to the governor's desk, so and he'll probably sign off it as well. So, you know, there will be, after many years of talking, some you know, major uh, test reform occurring in the state. Okay. And uh, in addition to being all over the education policy at the state level, you're also uh, covering what's happening on uh, happening closer to home in, in right here in Wake County. And so um, people can go to, to newsobserver.com to read all your education coverage, including uh, a story you wrote this week looking at all the changes in Wake as kids go back to school, um, everything from dress code to the policy on um, cheating in class. And what else? Uh, you've got a few other. There's been a few other changes that uh, you've mentioned in there um, as we as kids go back to school. Kids are going to have you know a few more extra days off from school this year, um, and so to uh, school we've got to be, you know less school, same amount of time, but just less school days. Okay. So in the legislature, um, we had a couple of vetoes from. Governor Cooper this week, and the big one was uh, one that we had pretty much expected, um, which was for uh, the legislature's effort to make sheriffs cooperate with ICE. Um, so the sheriffs in some of the state's biggest counties, um, most if not all of them black sheriffs, African-American sheriffs, uh, had said we're not going to uh, accept uh, ICE requests uh, to detain someone. And this had caused a whole controversy at the state level um, and uh, a bill that would um, force them to to accept those. And um, so this week, Cooper vetoed it. And what was his reasoning, Will? Um, He says it's basically just a uh, political stunt by the legislature and that, you know, local sheriffs are elected by the people in their communities and they should be able to have policies that, you know, reflect what their voters, their constituents, the people that they're charged with protecting, want to have. Um, uh, basically kind of a, uh, a small government message uh, coming from the governor here. And this is really kind of tied to the whole national, you know, just immigration debate that we're having right now over, you know, how to treat um, undocumented immigrants in this country. And in the 2018 elections, a lot of sheriffs ran basically, you know, the main point of their campaign was talking about immigration. You saw that here in Wake County. I, I think that was really the only thing that Gerald Baker, who's the, the new sheriff here, uh, you know, that was pretty much his whole campaign. He got a lot of money uh, from the ACLU uh, that was running ads on his behalf talking about his immigration stance. Um, you saw the same thing in Charlotte. Uh, I mean, new sheriffs elected Charlotte, Raleigh, Durham, Asheville, I think it was the seven or eight biggest counties in the state all 
um, have, like you said, black sheriffs for the first time ever, and most of them are brand new. Um, and immigration was a huge thing. And they said basically, you know, we don't think that, you know, we should necessarily be forced to cooperate with ICE on uh, basically helping deport people. And the question is, uh, it's not really a question of like, are these sheriffs like letting people out of jail early because they're immigrants or something like that? Basically what it is, is if you get charged with a crime and either your charges get dropped, so you're going to be let out of jail or a judge decides to give you uh, bail and you make bail and get out of jail like somebody else would, um, most people in those situations would get out of jail. But if you are suspected of maybe being here illegally, then um, ICE has an option to basically get a, a warrant for your arrest on the, on the immigration charge. Um, but a lot of times what ICE does, instead of doing the warrant and kind of going through like the proper paperwork to do all that, they just sort of informally ask the sheriffs to hold that person without a warrant. So there's some constitutional issues there that there have been plenty of lawsuits all over the country kind of saying that, that is unconstitutional. Sheriffs are violating people's rights when they hold them there without a warrant. Um, and so some sheriffs are kind of worried about getting sued over that and obviously having paid a lot of money for a lawsuit. Um, and then others, you know, just don't want to cooperate with ICE because it's a political issue. Um, and, you know, so there, there's kind of both of those angles there. There's the, the legal problems uh, with honoring these requests, which are potentially unconstitutional anyways, and then also just the, the legal issues. So some of the sheriffs do not want to cooperate with ICE anymore. Some sheriffs do. Um, the, the North Carolina Sheriff's Association did support the bill that the legislature had that would force uh, sheriffs to work with ICE. They originally opposed it, um, but then the legislature made a few tweaks to the bill and um, the Sheriff's Association came around. But obviously there's division within the ranks. And um, either way, doesn't look like it's going to happen. Uh, Cooper vetoed it, as we all expected. And it doesn't look like it has the votes uh, in the legislature for them to override the veto. Um, so probably, you know, it'll just, the status quo will stay in place and sheriffs will be able to make their own decisions on how they want to treat people in their jails. And in all likelihood, we'll see a lot of campaign ads about this in 2020. You'll see ads from Republicans accusing Cooper of being a sanctuary governor. That's a phrase that we've already uh, seen people throwing out, kind of, you know, hearkening uh, back to the sanctuary cities debate from a few years ago, which this isn't really the same thing as a sanctuary city, but people are calling him a sanctuary governor. I'm sure we'll see that language in ads. And you'll probably see, you know, Democrats, you know, have ads, you know, that they are, you know, standing up for civil rights and things like that. So, um, yeah, it'll just, you know, uh, be one more, uh, layer of of politics in 2020. Mm -hmm. And the proponents of this in the legislature, it's mostly Republicans, it's been pretty much party line. Um, you know, why do they say that the sheriffs need to comply with these, these requests? Well, they say it, it's their job to enforce the laws, and ICE is trying to enforce these federal laws, and they think it's absurd that sheriffs wouldn't want to help ICE. Um, you know, as I said, some of the sheriffs obviously don't want to do it for political reasons, but some also have constitutional questions of, you know, the, is the thing that ICE is asking them to do even legal? Um, and, but yeah, I mean, the, that that's the Republican line, basically, that, you know, like the sheriffs, you know, shouldn't be, you know, refusing to work with ICE, their, their fellow law enforcement partners. 
Um, of course, the, the governor also uh, uh, has vetoed another bill dealing with um, billboards. That just happened yesterday uh, after environmentalists um, spoke out against this bill that would uh, give billboard companies some more leeway in moving their billboards uh, to new spots. Um, and then the uh, fight goes on about the budget that Cooper vetoed. And um, the latest, after it seems like the House is not going to be able to override Cooper's veto, um, is that the Republican leaders are saying they're going to start splitting up the budget into pieces and trying to pass those and see if those will pass. And um, no doubt choosing some of the more popular pieces, including raises. Um, they've talked about doing raises for correctional workers, also things that are kind of must pass, like um, the privatization of Medicaid that's ongoing and, and uh, needs some legislation to implement it. Um, and then they made an interesting proposal uh, at the same press conference where they said they would be doing this. Um, they want to give away uh, part of the money that they've, uh, that they've collected. So, Will, what's going on with that? Yeah, so the state budget is around $24 billion. Um, and then they actually came up with a surplus this year of $900 million, almost a billion dollars. So it's a pretty decent chunk, one uh, twenty-fourth, whatever that is, 3% maybe of the state budget. The, the math people can correct me if I'm wrong on that. And this is basically the amount of money they came that came in above what they thought was going to come exactly, in. Exactly, right. What they had budgeted for versus what they actually received in taxes and everything else, how the state raises money. Um, it's not quite like the surplus at the surplus or deficit at the federal level where, um, you know, here in North Carolina, you have to have a balanced budget. Right. So there's, there's not a surplus and deficit in the sense that you might think about it. But if you budget for a certain amount of revenue and more comes in, then you have basically a surplus. Exactly. And uh, the Republicans who uh, are in charge of the legislature are, you know, true to their name, pretty conservative when they budget. Um, and so, uh, you know, they, you know, you, you usually expect some sort of surplus, um, but this was definitely a lot bigger than I think a lot of people expected it to be. Uh, and so there's this question about how to spend the money. Uh, you know, do you send it towards, you know, an extra billion dollars in raises for state workers? Do you send it to schools to replace textbooks? Do you fix up some roads? Or do you give it back to the taxpayers who gave the state that money? And that's what the Republicans are proposing. Uh, their plan... Uh, it, it doesn't look like the numbers are exactly set in stone at this point, but they would take some of that $900 million, send it to the state's rainy day fund, uh, basically the savings account, you know, what we use when there's literal rainy days like hurricanes and disaster relief, or, you know, if there's another recession, we have to, you know, plug holes in the budget, then you have this, you know, extra just pot of money hanging out. So they're going to send some of the money to that and then send the rest of the money back to people. And, the plan that they're floating right now would basically give, um, uh, I think it's up to $250 to every uh, married couple that paid state income taxes last year. So if, if you were a income tax paying household, you'll get some money back. Uh, you know, for single people, it'd be less, I think it'd be $125. Um, uh, but for you married listeners out there, it would be $250 for your family. Um, and you know, 250 is a decent chunk of change. Uh, you know, it's it's not obviously life-changing money for a lot of people, but, you know, if you're short on bills one month or, you know, you want to go out and you know, buy a new TV or something like that, I mean, that's, you know, that's nothing to sneeze at. Um, so 
it'll probably be a pretty popular proposal. I mean, who wouldn't want to just get a free $250? Um, you know, it'd be nice. <laughs> but there's a lot of people who say, no, that short-sighted state has been shortchanging its duties for a long time. You know, it needs to send more money to schools. And so, yeah, well, I'd like the 250 I would rather them keep my money and use it for the greater good. Uh, that's kind of the, the liberal response to this. And so it, it's really kind of an ideological breakdown of, you know, how do you, how do you think government should operate? Should it, you know, use the money it has to, you know, do more government spending or should it send the money back to the people? It's the basic breakdown of the two parties. Um, so we'll, we'll see where it goes. Okay. And that's another one that I imagine if it is blocked will um, feature prominently in, in campaign ads oh, yeah. uh, against uh, Cooper and the Democrats for, sure. uh, over, uh, uh, for pe- targeting people who would have liked to have gotten that extra cash. Um, so that's about it happening at the legislature uh, this week, or at least all that we uh, will talk about today. Um, but Brian, um, one thing that you covered in, uh, in D.C. was a announcement by um, all the attorney general attorneys general in the country uh, to uh, that might give us some relief from robocalls and um, the North Carolina angle on this uh, is that Josh Stein our attorney general was heavily involved and helped lead this coalition of AGs who were negotiating with the phone companies so um, what did they persuade the the phone companies to do about robocalls. Well, the phone companies have agreed to to help uh, state governments sort of trace these calls. Um, one, they, they talked about uh, dividing it into kind of two buckets. One is prevention, and the second is enforcement. And they believe that there's a lot of technological advances that they can use to prevent these calls. Um, you, you've heard of the spoofing where uh, they'll have the same area code as you and maybe the same first three digits as your phone number. So you think it might be a neighbor or it might be someone locally that is trying to get in touch with you. Um, so so that's an issue. Um, other than that, uh, there's some enforcement abilities, their ability to trace where these calls are coming from, um, uh, their ability to kind of shut down uh, these call mills, for, for lack of a better term, uh, people who are processing billions and billions of phone calls a year. Um, so so they're, they're trying a, a number of things that the largest phone companies in the country have agreed to, Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, uh, Comcast, uh, CenturyLink, um, many of the charter, many of the phone carriers that you've heard of have agreed uh, to help the the state governments work on this issue. Uh, It's a non-binding agreement. There's not really a time frame on it, Uh, but it seemed clear from the press conference that I attended that the phone companies are are having problems with this too. Um, People are unhappy getting all these these calls. They naturally call their phone phone provider um, as one of their things. Uh, You know, somebody from the telecom industry said that, you know, people are abusing their networks. Um, you know, Verizon's network, for example, is being overrun um, by all of these these spam calls or robocalls. Uh, and, and then further, we, we all know a story of, of usually elderly people being scammed out of money. Uh, they told many stories about people being scammed out of life savings because of these robocalls. They, they weren't aware. They, they sent money to someone. Um, and so uh, 
this is the number one issue Josh Stein said, and there were other attorneys general there from uh, Arkansas and New Hampshire. They also said it's their number one issue. The FCC says it's the number one issue that they hear about. So uh, we're not the only ones, I think, tired of, of picking up the phone and, and hearing a computer voice on the other end. And I just, uh, you know, have gotten to the point where, like a lot of people where I just don't answer my phone if it's got my area code because I know no one's calling me from that. But um, you know, you're, you're, some of the people in, in your story made some interesting points about what what that can mean. You might miss a really important call, right? Yeah, the the governor. Uh, I'm sorry, the attorney general of New Hampshire told a story that was featured in in one of the newspapers up there about a woman who was on the transplant list, was waiting for a liver transplant, and didn't answer the phone. Um, because she didn't recognize the number and, and had gotten so many spam phone calls. The, the good news to that story is that she was able to quickly check her voicemail, realize it was a legitimate call, um, you know, call the hospital, get, get on, on the line, and, and she did get her transplant. But um, you know, how many important phone calls do you miss because you, you just don't answer the, the phone? Um, you know, there are certainly the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and, and some others argue that some of these robocalls are, are important and that you should still be getting them when your pharmacy calls and lets you know that a prescription's ready or you need to refill a prescription or your doctor calls and, and reminds you that you have an appointment um, or, or your child's school calls and, and says that there's an emergency and you need to come um, you know pick up your child. So, uh, so there are some robocalls that are not illegal and are coming from legitimate sources. Uh, they believe the technology exists to, to weed out the bad calls and, and allow those good calls to come through. Um, Josh Stein said he helped write the, the do not call list in, in North Carolina, the law that, that created that, and said that's done a really good job. You know, right? Everyone's like, well, there's a do not call list. Why am I still getting these calls? He says that's done a very good job of weeding out legitimate businesses. You're no longer getting calls from telemarketers um, from legitimate corporations that are trying to sell you something. Those calls have all gone away because those, those corporations and companies don't want to violate the law. Uh, what these these other companies or, or these other people that are making these spam calls now are criminals uh, is what we were told at, at the press conference. And they know they're violating the law, but it's worth it if they can find one person to uh, to send money somewhere or they can attract some some important information from that person. And, and they're able to mask where these calls are coming from. So the chance of getting caught is, is very low. So. It's a really interesting issue and one that seems to affect you know just about every American with a with a landline or a cell phone. Yeah, if you thought sending out uh, cash to taxpayers was popular, this is this is really uh, the one thing that may be more popular than 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 <laughs> that, uh, and probably about the only thing where you could get fifty one uh, states on board. Uh, well, well, as a result of, uh, I mean, just some more evidence how popular it is. There's been various uh, bills in the United States Senate, I mean, in the United States Congress about this. The one in the Senate passed 97 to 1 and the one in the House passed 429 to 3. Um, we rarely see that kind of agreement um, in either in either chamber up here. And so I think, yeah, all 51 attorney generals, attorneys general from, from you know, Republicans to Democrats, so probably some independents in there as well, uh, all agree that it's time to do something about these robocalls uh, on a little more partisan note we do have elections coming up and two of our congressional districts and we talked about these of course before on the podcast but um, in the third district which is on the coast uh, voters will be going to the polls september 10th or can go to the polls now uh, in early voting uh, to uh, replace 
the late Walter Jones. And in the 9th District, uh, there's another special election the same day, September 10th, uh, to uh, a do-over for the election that was marred by fraud last year. That's the uh, district, the 9th District running from Charlotte area to uh, Fayetteville area. Um, so, uh, Brian, what are, uh, who are the candidates in these races? Who are people voting for? Yeah, in North Carolina 3, that's the coastal, um, the coastal district. Uh, the Republican is uh, Greg Murphy, who's a state representative, uh, a doctor. Um, he's been endorsed by President Trump. In fact, uh, Donald Trump Jr. is expected to, to make a visit to the state to uh, campaign for him. Uh, he's got the backing of the House Freedom Caucus. He's running against uh, Democrat Alan Thomas, who's the former mayor of Greenville and was the former executive director of the North Carolina Global Trans Park in Kinston. Um, they're obviously the two main candidates in that race. Uh, there's also a libertarian candidate and a Constitution Party candidate. Um, you know, that district uh, voted overwhelmingly for President Trump in 2016. Uh, he won the district over Hillary Clinton by about 23, 24 points. Um, so most people think that uh, Murphy is going to get elected in that district. It's just a matter of, of how large a margin it is. Um, in, in the ninth district, which most people expect to be much, much closer, uh, Dan McCready, who is the Democrat, he ran in 2018 uh, against Mark Harris before the uh, fraud allegations and, and decision by the state board to, to run a new election there. He's running against Dan Bishop, uh, probably best known across the state for his support of H, uh, HB2, um, the, the bill about... Um, uh, transgender bathroom bill is, you know, for lack of a better description. Um, President Trump actually yesterday came out and said that he would be traveling to that district to support Dan Bishop to hold some sort of event. Uh, we have not been able to track that down. Hopefully we will soon uh, exactly what the president's plans are. Um, some people, you know, in D.C., everything gets read into. And so some people say that's a sign that uh, Republicans are worried about that district. Um, I, I don't know if that's true or if uh, the president, who has endorsed Bishop in the past, including at that rally in Greenville when he endorsed both Republican candidates in these races, um, it may just be an important uh, trip for the president to make because North Carolina's importance in the 2020 election. Um, so there could be any number of reasons that the president has decided to to publicly get involved in, in that race. But either way, uh, North Carolina should have a full uh, congressional delegation for the first time in a long time uh, on September 10th, uh, September 11th. Uh, imagine when Congress gets back, uh, both who the winners of both of those districts will be sworn in uh, pretty shortly after that. Okay. And uh, again, you can go to our website to see our, our full coverage of that from us and from our sister paper, the Charlotte Observer, uh, including some fact checks. Uh, one went up today from uh, from Andy Spey, uh, and you can read all about all the many ads that are um, uh, all over the airwaves uh, right now in that race for the next few weeks. We'll take a break and we'll come back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Headliner of the week, 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 headliner of the week. Who's hot? We're back with more Domecast, and now it's time for headliner of the week to decide the most important, influential, or interesting person, place, or thing in this week's news. Will Doran, who's your headliner? Uh, my headliner are voting machines. Um, I am actually, as soon as we wrap up taping this podcast, going to head over to a meeting of the North Carolina Board of Elections where 
they are going to uh, continue down the process of figuring out uh, what voting machines we will be able to use in the 2020 elections and beyond. Uh, a lot of the machines in places like uh, Charlotte and Greensboro are getting phased out at the end of this year, and we have to have new machines in place for 2020. Um, it's probably not going to affect the triangle here. Uh, Wake County, our machines aren't getting phased out, but Charlotte, Greensboro, some other places, theirs are. And it's been a really kind of contentious battle over uh, basically how secure these machines should be, what types of features they should or shouldn't have. And uh, it's been, well, it's been dragging on for years, but the specific arguments that we're seeing now have been dragging on since probably May, uh, several months over the summer. And uh, there's been, you know, the board chairman, Bob Cordell, had to resign because of an inappropriate joke he made. Now we have a new chairman, Damon Sarcosta. Um, and so there's just been all sorts of drama over there. But it uh, looks like they might uh, kind of wrap that up or at least make some big steps towards wrapping it up uh, uh, today, Friday. So who knows, by, by the weekend, we could know a lot more about what, you know, what the actual process of voting is going to look like in 2020, which obviously is important to a lot of people. Okay. Uh, voting machines in the hat for headliner of the week. Kern Huey, who's your headliner? State Superintendent Mark Johnson. Uh, he's, his handling of the uh, contract for um, the reading contract has been got even more attention this week when the um, state was issued blocking the new contract. Uh, He's been an enthusiastic backer of the new company, and um, uh, when he uh, announced this week that he was stepping in to um, appeal the decision, uh, um, the statement he made, it's been picked up a lot on social media. He quipped that, uh, I'm the uh, NC superintendent of public instruction, but I'm also a lawyer. That's a good thing on weeks like this one, because um, he went out there and he's uh, using his legal background to uh, fight to keep that new contract in place. Um, I mean, there's, there's also been a lot of speculation about whether or not Johnson, who was elected in 2016, is going to be running for re-election next year. He hasn't uh, publicly said one way or the other. Uh, Education NC reported this week that um, Catherine Truitt, uh, who used to be uh, Governor McCrory's uh, senior education advisor, she's now um, chancellor of uh, WGU North Carolina, that the online university has said that um, she told Education NC that... Um, She's interested in running, and she's talked to Johnson, but she but that she only run if Johnson decided not to uh, seek another term. So, there's at this point, there's no clear consensus. You know who's going to be on the Republican side. In contrast, you've got five Democrats so far already announced that they're gonna they want to seek the seat next year. So, um, you know, we're waiting to see you know going forward if uh, who's going to be the GOP standard bearer in that race in 2020. Okay, Mark Johnson up for headliner of the week. And finally, Brian Murphy, who's your headliner? Uh, my headliner of the week is John Swafford, the former athletic director at the University of North Carolina and now the commissioner of the ACC. Um, the ACC Network, uh, a, a project about a decade in the making, uh, launched on Thursday, not without some problems uh, for some Spectrum users. And I think uh, our colleagues, uh, Andrew Carter and Luke Dukak and 
uh, Brooke Kane have been all over the network and what it means for ACC fans. But if you're a fan of uh, Duke or North Carolina or North Carolina State or Wake Forest, uh, the financial success of the ACC network is going to determine a lot about how the athletic future of your uh, school, your favorite school, goes. And uh, this is a project that's been in the works for more than a decade to finally have it on the air. Um, last night uh, as a venture with ESPN, I think is a tremendous accomplishment for the ACC and, and probably one of the final acts of, of John Swafford's career, uh, which has been a long career in athletic administration. Okay, John Swafford in the hat for headliner of the week. And uh, I'm going to go with John Swafford because um, it's football season. College football finally starting up uh, tomorrow. May have already started up with some of those weird Wednesday or Thursday games. I don't know. Uh, but uh, uh, excited to have college football back, and uh, since it's Brian's second consecutive attempt to get a sports headliner, um, those poor little league kids last week didn't get it. But but uh, since it's football season, we'll go with this one. Uh, so John Swafford is our headliner of the week, and Brian Murphy is our winner. And that's it for Domecast. For Brian Murphy, Kern Huey, and Will Doran, I'm Jordan Schrader. Catch us next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News & Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 